and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. So today on the Path 11 podcast, I am joined with best-selling author of Breaking Open the Head, Daniel Pinchbeck. He teamed up with an anthropologist, Sophia Rocklin, to write the first comprehensive look at ayahuasca and the global renaissance it's created with psychedelic drugs. We're going to be talking about that book today, and it is called When Plants Dream. So I would like to welcome Daniel on our show. Hi, Daniel. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. And I just wanted to remind our listeners, too, that we've had a couple of people on talking about uh, the plant of ayahuasca. Um, For you listening today, you guys can check out episode 90 and 97. We interviewed Christine Breeze and Rachel Harris, and they covered a a little bit of what um, Daniel and Sophia also covered in their book about what ayahuasca is, the plant, how to use that in ceremony, and also how sometimes people can use it for transformational purposes of healing depression and PTSD. So Daniel, we'll probably have you talk a little bit about that, but I really learned so much um, from this book in other areas that I'm hoping we get to cover on, uh, you know, just the laws around ayahuasca, uh, the legality of it, some of the misuse that has been happening, and just kind of where it's going today uh, in in the world. So welcome, and um, maybe we can start off if you'd like to share your first experience with ayahuasca, because you mentioned that in the book. Uh, yeah, I think it was like, um, 1998 or something. And, um, really it was, you know, very much not a big, big, uh, phenomenon at that point. So I was in New York and, uh, I'd started, uh, exploring psychedelics again in my late twenties, um, out of a kind of a spiritual quest in a way, like wanting to see if, um, there was a way to learn more about the nature of consciousness or the psyche and uh, it was the investigations that were later um, you know, published in my first book, Breaking Open the Head. Uh, and I first did it. It was uh, two shamans from California. Uh, I think there was just like two, two or three of us who drank in an uh, apartment by the Hudson River downtown. And I didn't have like very, very deep visions that day. But I guess I had enough vision, enough sense that there was something possibly profound about the experience that I was uh, inspired to go deeper. Wonderful. And like you said, too, if people are interested, they can also uh, read your book, Breaking Open the Head, there as well. Um, So why don't we just touch a little bit upon, just in case if our listeners have not listened to those episodes, do you want to just give a little more education about the plant of ayahuasca, you know, why it's used and how it can be helpful, I guess, in consciousness and um, healing our consciousness, uh, delving into other realms, and uh, maybe we could start there and then we'll we'll move into some other areas yeah absolutely i mean um well i mean throughout south and central america you know we've discovered a number of uh different uh, visionary plants that were used uh, sacramentally in many indigenous cultures uh there with whether it's peyote in mexico or san pedro in peru uh yopo in brazil 
And uh, then in the 20th century, well, I guess even the 19th century, we were, we were actually even even some of the um, colonialists noticed it. Um, it also turns out that um, there's a, a, a drink, a psychedelic drink, a medicine, as they call it, uh, that's made from two plants, uh, usually brewed together for many hours. And one of those plants, I mean, the brew, brew itself is called ayahuasca, but it's made up of, of uh, two plants that are brewed together. One is the ayahuasca vine or Banisteriopsis capi, uh, which contains um, MAO inhibitors. Uh, and the second one is a Psychotria viridis, uh, a bush that contains uh, the plant, the leaves contain uh, dimethyltryptamine or DMT, which is a psychedelic compound that is normally uh, recognized by your gut and then kind of neutralized if you try to eat it. But because it's mixed with the MEO inhibitors in the uh, ayahuasca vine, uh, it becomes orally active. And um, whereas with if you could smoke DMT, you might have a 10-minute experience that's extremely jarring and overwhelming. But when it's mixed with the ayahuasca potion, it can be more of like a three to five hour uh, kind of visionary journey. Yeah. And you talk about in the book, too, um, you know, how it can really help people. A lot of um, people who have taken it will come out of these experiences having really profound experiences where it can help people that have struggled with addiction, depression, um, you know, PTSD. And do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're still we're undergoing our, our learning phase as a culture. Um, you know, basically, as I, I know, particularly explored in Breaking Open the Head, uh, you know, the, the whole area of psychedelics um, and mind expansion had really been suppressed by you know, European and American civilization. Uh, and then in the 50s, uh, these things were kind of rediscovered. Uh, LSD was discovered in the 40s in Europe. Um, Gordon Wasson discovered the mushrooms, uh, you know, that the Mazatecs were using in, in uh, Mexico. Uh, I guess uh, Richard Schultes was one by, uh, ethnobotanist from Harvard who began to chronicle use of ayahuasca. And, um, yeah, so, um, so what we've been discovering is that uh, it has uses, you know, medicinally, um, you know, for a lot of uh, psychological conditions, uh, depression, um, you know, these things seem to work for obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, for uh, PTSD. Uh, there's actually a really nice documentary film that was just made called uh, From Shock to Awe, which focuses on uh, Iraq veterans who have treatment-averse forms of PTSD, who work in it with a, with a ayahuascaro in Florida and uh, completely break out of their, uh, their, their, their syndrome. And... Um, yeah, so that's you know it's basically this you know ayahuasca is one of a of a class of substances that we're discovering have more and more uh, positive mental health benefits when they're used properly. Uh, MDMA is obviously another one that you know was originally developed as a as a therapy tool in the '70s, then it was outlawed because of the connection to rave culture, and now there's actually uh, very intense. Uh, 
clinical trials going on. I think it's phase three FDA trials uh, to uh, have, uh, have MDMA you know, used as a uh, treatment tool for post-traumatic stress disorder. And they're finding it has like a 60% cure rate, even in the uh, treatment-averse forms of PTSD. Um, so, yeah, we're really just at the beginnings. And we talked in the book about uh, eating disorders in ayahuasca. We talked about depression. We talked about uh, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a very comprehensive book. And, and yeah, you're right. There's a lot more clinical trials, uh, you know, with with this stuff as well as like psilocybin. You know, that's, that's another thing that... Um, I was learning about this year as well and the clinical trials that are going on with that and helping, you know, people to treat these things. So it's interesting that it's kind of coming around back full circle. Definitely. Yeah. When you mentioned Florida too, I thought it was really interesting um, in your book when you were talking about the Soul Quest Church of Mother Earth in Orlando, Florida. I'm like, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that that's also one of the things too. It's like when you hear about ayahuasca, if you really don't have much information about it, I think one of the first questions is, well, you know, how do I experience this? Who do I know? It seems to be so underground in so many ways where these private ceremonies are, are happening and, you know, you have to know someone who knows someone someone who knows someone. And I was not familiar with um, the Soul Quest Church of Mother Earth in Orlando, Florida, and found that to be kind of interesting in how you told that story. Do you want to share that with our audience? Uh, which story in particular? Um, about the, fun, the founder, uh, Christopher Young, and how um, what was interesting was like how yeah. they knew that this was going on there, but there wasn't like a whole lot of stuff that took place like within the law, and they were like threatening, I think, to shut it down, but that never really happened either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, he's an interesting guy. He came from kind of like a, you know, more like lower class background. And uh, then he had an awakening with ayahuasca, I think, in Ibiza, and really wanted to share it with the world. And I think he discovered that you could register with the Native American church, which provides some protection for medicine practices. And where most of the people I've known over the last decades who've been involved with it have been you know, held it pretty close to their chest, and it's been kind of like an underground railroad where you have to kind of know somebody and, and to do it in the U.S. because the legality is is very unclear. Uh, Chris has just kind of like gone for it, and he's been marketing SoulQuest and doing you know quite inexpensive uh, treatments. Like he really wants to make it you know medicine for the people. And uh, while the FDA has definitely been interested in his activities, so far they have not uh, shut him down. Right. Yeah. So. Let's go into talking about just um, the law. Uh, you know, you, we're talking about in your book the lawmakers and how they schedule substances on a scale uh, from one to five. So I was just hoping that you can educate our audience a little bit about that and what's going on with the law and ayahuasca. Yeah, I mean, just for some history uh, in the 60s, you know, well, the late 50s, you know, psychologists in Europe and America started to rediscover these psychedelics or discover them. And they were really amazed by their uh, potential and believed that they were the most powerful tools for exploring the human psyche and the human mind that we never found. Uh, however, as they got released into the counterculture and kind of, you know, mixed in with the civil rights movement and, you know, the, all these different movements that were happening in the 60s, they were kind of uh, seen as a culprit by the establishment. So in 66, uh, they began the process of making them all uh, very illegal. And uh, by 1970, with the Quilt Sub Controlled Substances Act, uh, psychedelics were all Schedule One, which meant they were you know, the highest uh, characterization of drugs that have a high potential for abuse and no uh, positive value. Uh, 
so yeah, so that you know, and that basically put an end to uh, scientific studies. They were written out of the medical textbooks. But I wrote Breaking Up in the Head in like around 2000. You, know, you really still couldn't even talk about psychedelics with a straight face uh, publicly. People would just laugh at you, uh, ridicule, you know, the, you know, the times called them toys of the hippie generation. And, um, so with the psychedelic Renaissance, the legality is beginning to shift. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, ayahuasca has been a little bit on the forefront of that. I mean, first of all, case around, uh, peyote, uh, with the native American church, uh, and, um, the Supreme, they took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled against the Native American Church, and so um, it became a, it was going to be a state's issue. But then actually there was a lot of pressure on Congress, so Congress issued an emergency religious freedoms proclamation. Uh, kind of based on that, uh, there, there's ayahuasca is not only used by indigenous groups and mestizo shamans, there are also a number of religions from Brazil that uh, started in the 1920s when... Um, Essentially, the mestizo culture get, began to encounter the uh, indigenous cultures in the uh, Amazon. Uh, people who were working as border guards or rubber tappers made friends with the local indigenous groups, started drinking ayahuasca with them, and they were from this Catholic background. And when they had their visions, they would see kind of this melding of uh, Christian and indigenous imagery and iconography. And that led to several new religions, including uh, Santo Daime and one called Uno de Vegetal. Uh, the American group of Uno de Vegetal, the leader of it, was from a very wealthy family, the Bronfman family, and the Seagram's fortune, and MGM. And um, when, uh, I can't remember exactly the year now, maybe 2003 or something, the uh, government uh, kind of raided, uh, you know, de Vegetal took all of their, uh, you know, plant medicine, but he had the deep pockets to fight a case all the way through the Supreme Court that actually won at the Supreme Court level uh, the right to use ayahuasca as a sacrament. Uh, and then following upon that a few years later, Santo Daime, United Vegetalis, is uh, very secretive, not very proselytizing religion. Uh, Daime is a little bit more open to the public, um, but the Daime won a significant case, I believe, in uh, Oregon uh, around protection of ayahuasca for sacramental use. So kind of since then, the government has been kind of like not as, you know, kind of uh, interested in this whole area. Uh, and I mean, there have been a few other uh, bus, bus, one, one uh, South American shaman was taken into custody for transporting the medicine. Then ultimately, I think he was actually let go. So there feels to me this kind of like, it's not totally clear, but a kind of like, you know, tacit uh, acceptance of ayahuasca right now. But obviously, if somebody was to push that into obvious way, or if there are any deaths that start to be associated with ayahuasca use, the legal framework could change very, very quickly. So it's kind of at a delicate place right now. Right. And uh, speaking about the deaths, um, you know, the other thing that you really cover, too, is the misuse of this, what to look out for. How do you know that you're really, you know, going into a ceremony with a legit shaman or person that can facilitate this? And I was blown away by the story that you had in your book about Kyle Nolan. Um, so can we talk a little bit about what people should look out for? Maybe we can even share the story of Kyle Nolan and what happened there in that situation and how, you know, the person that was 
leading these ceremonies was actually quite horrible. <laughs> um, and, you know, not that you want to instill fear in people, but I think that it's really important, especially, you know, maybe people like myself that we don't know a whole lot, but interested in, in the experience and how, you know, it can work with our own consciousness. But, you know, do we really have the tools and have we dug deep to do the research to know wh what a safe ceremony is and who we can entrust in bringing us through this type of journey? Right. Well, I, I guess, um, you know, uh, as I said, the modern world is now kind of like um, developing, you know, a, a new relationship to kind of the, uh, you know, kind of esoteric realms and the sacred realms and the healing realms that one can access through plant medicine uh, in a way like um, – in the, in the modern or, you know, the last five or ten years of the psychedelic uh, renaissance, the focus has been very much on science and personal healing uh, and, um, you know, creating a kind of culture of positivity around the value of these things, which is all true. But, you know, there, there's also as, as something I've discussed in my past work and Breaking Open the Head and my other book, 2012, uh, there's also this idea of initiation. And, you know, in tribal societies, you know, you would often, you know, go through kind of initiatory experiences using uh, visionary plants. And, um, you know, those could also be very threatening. Like the idea of initiation requires to go through like a, a liminal zone, passing through kind of like the death space, the spirit realm, the demon realm, you know, for the, sh for the shamanic cultures, there are all these different worlds of uh, spirits that we can contact, particularly easily to contact them when we're in these uh, altered states or transpersonal states. Um, so, um, yeah, so you, 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 when, you, when, you, when you sighed, you kind of like drifted me off my thought structure there. Well, 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 <laughs> well, yeah, no, I was just taking a deep breath in. I was shaking my head like, yes, keep, keep going. But <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to distract you. Uh, what was the original question again? It was about um, the... Uh, just about like, how how do we practice this safely? You know, what is it that okay, we're... So the first thing I was going to say is that I'm not sure that you can practice it totally safely because, and I, and I think that, you know, it's a very modern, but, you know, also everything we do involves some level of danger or risk, like driving a car, you know, upstate, you know, you can, your car could get hit by another car, you know, walking to the store, you can get, you know, mugged or something, you know, but, but I mean, here, there, there are some risks uh, on just even without worrying about manipulative other people because they open up gateways in the psyche. And, you know, that, that's why, you know, most uh, kind of responsible uh, shamans or clinics that use plant medicine have like a screening process where they really want to make sure that people don't have, you know, underlying psychological issues that might come out during ceremony. And, you know, sometimes it does happen, you know, even if there's no, you know, sense that somebody had, a, had an issue. So these are, you know, things that need to be respected. You know, these are, there, there are dangers with, uh, you know, exploring consciousness in this way. That's um, just a reality. I mean, even, you know, Michael Pollan in his recent book described some, you know, experiences that were difficult for him to assimilate. You know, you're, you're opening yourself to these uh, other dimensions of consciousness. And it, it's never going to be quite so simple as just like, uh, you know, like taking a aspirin or something like that. Right. And once you have an experience like this, you know, just that integration too. it's and say it's a positive experience. You can't really unsee what you what you saw or, you know, what you experienced. Um, you know, it's you come out of it a different person. You know, it does change and can alter yeah. the consciousness. 
Well, that's the whole idea of initiation. You actually are meant to become a different person. Like you have to die to the old self and, you know, step out of the ego and, and, and then kind of be able to, you know, look at the world, you know, in a kind of deconditioned or deprogrammed way, you know. Right. Now, have you had any um, experience or have spoken to people about maybe people who uh, went through a ceremony and it actually did trigger trigger more, um, you know, mental illness or ignited something that made it really difficult for them to reintegrate back in? And how does one recover uh, from an experience like that? I mean, do they go back to traditional mental health therapy? Um, you know, what are kind of the repercussions of that? Or do you know uh, somebody that maybe had that experience and then was able to come out either of psychosis um, yeah. from that. Sure, sure. I, I mean, look, I've known at this point, I've been on this stuff, you know, to the, Breaking Up With Head came out in 2002. I started learning about, you know, ayahuasca in the late 90s and other psychedelics. And, you know, I've, I've known many thousands and heard of many thousands of people who've gone through these experiences. The vast majority of them are, you know, had incredible times that are very grateful and didn't have big problems. But yeah, I've also, you know, seen people, uh, you know, end up, you know, in, in, you know, going into sports or, you know, really being unable to reintegrate, uh, for a while. Uh, generally, you know, those people have been, you know, ultimately okay. Uh, but they had to pass through a kind of, uh, you know, difficult passage, you know, and what, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but you know, when, when you begin to explore consciousness and you're able to open up to the greater reality and understand that there are so many other dimensions and many times in traditional mental health therapy, you know, I come from that background and, and trained in it. But once I kind of took the path of consciousness, it made me really look at stuff much, much differently and saying, you know, maybe people who we think are, you know, quote unquote out there, uh, really aren't out there there, but maybe they're more sensitive to see and experience things that we are blocking ourselves from and having the ability to. Um, so what are, what are your thoughts about that? I know that we may call it psychosis and gra granted there really are, um, you know, some things that happen within, you know, the, the mind, but also, you know, how do we argue that what maybe some people are experiencing isn't a true reality either? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, from from the kind of indigenous shamanic perspective, most of what we can think about as mental illnesses, you know, they would see as like spiritual afflictions, like evil spirits or evil spirits from the ancestor lines that like possess people. And um, I mean, I, you know, I think it's just as legitimate a way to, uh, to understand, um, you know, various types of mental health issues. Yeah. Um, I, I remember speaking to someone that had a totally different view on schizophrenia and that uh, sometimes what is happening with that uh, individual consciousness is that they are really able to experience and have access to kind of parallel dimensions that are happening all at the same time and can make it very difficult for them to ground and to be in the reality here on earth because for whatever reason, their access, uh, they're able to access almost like too many dimensions going on at once. I thought that to be interesting. I don't know if it's yeah. true or not. I it's don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But I mean, I, I do, I do, I do find that compelling. Uh, I mean, I think first of all, I mean, that's like the, you know, there's big news 
in in this in in the rediscovery of the psychedelic experience is that there do seem to be these you know multiple dimensions or like you know many many different kind of body mind states that that we actually experience you know different types of uh, information and knowledge and uh, resonance and so on i mean i think that's really wonderful because the modern scientific worldview has had a little bit of a tendency to kind of uh you know, want to, want to create the sense of closure, like we're shutting down, you know, reality. Like we, we, we know that, you know, the world is only this and it's only, it's only matter and it's only atoms and, you know, space is infinite and empty, you know, and so on. And so, um, you know, the, 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 the psychedelic experience is really is a phenomenological and metaphysical, um, experience that, you know, for many people, uh, leads to a, a change or, or, or transformation in their understanding of themselves in relationship to nature and the cosmos. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So um, why don't we talk a little bit about where you think uh, ayahuasca is evolving to just, um, you know, in our Western culture? What is the future of this and what, what are you seeing? Well, so, I mean, you know, for um, there's, you know, there's a number of different strands there. I mean, one is at the moment there's a, you know, beginning to be a bit of a supply and demand problem. Uh, in fact, Sophia Rocklin, who was my co-author on the book and, and, and a dear friend, is actually working on a program in Peru to now help indigenous communities to sustainably grow uh, ayahuasca for the global market. Um, the problem being that, you know, in this ayahuasca boom of the last like 15 years, uh, a lot of the old vines are being uh, stripped away and, um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of focus on, uh, how to create a, you know, it takes like seven years for the vine to reach maturity. So it's not an easy process. Um, so that's one, you know, issue. There needs to be more uh, concerted effort to uh, make sure that we're, you know, sustaining, uh, the, the, uh, the supply of ayahuasca. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's, uh, we're going to see more, yeah, it's, it just seems like a very, you know, big growing interest in this, in this area. Uh, and for me also, as I said before, sort of insinuated before, it's like, it's gotten a little bit stuck in the uh, self-help and self-care idea, which is so, you know, kind of, uh, such a big focus of our, of our, of our culture. Uh, for me, I'm very interested in how, the psychedelic experience, and maybe particularly ayahuasca, above all, contributes to a uh, individual becoming aware of, let's say, the, the ecological crisis that we're facing as a species, and how, in a way, we need to uh, access like new reservoirs of courage and understanding to transform ourselves and our communities as we're facing a uh, threat to like the very future of our existence that is self-created by our technologies. And I feel in a way that the psychedelic, you know, substances, particularly the natural ones like ayahuasca and mushrooms are kind of like nature's counteractive. They're, they're frantically seeking to point our attention in a different direction and see that, um, there's a, there's a sort of inherent and intrinsic connection between the, uh, you know, the perceiving self and the, uh, and, and the world. And unless we actually do that inner work of consciousness and then express that inner work through, you know, kind of outer actions in the world that are altruistic for other people, that are connective, that, you know, build community and so on, you know, we, we basically miss the message of, of, the, of the medicine. Yeah. 
Well, Daniel, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me, to educate me more um, about this plant. Um, it's been really fascinating, I would say, in the last year and a half or two, I really started to delve more into, um, you know, the research of this. So I'm still still at the beginning paths of it. Um, haven't actually experienced it myself, but that may be something in my future. But it was really uh, just wonderful to speak with you, to have your knowledge, your education, uh, and your passion about this uh, on the Path Loving Podcast. So thank you so much. Cool. Yeah. I mean, if people want to check out my work, there's a, you know, One Plant Stream is the latest book. How Soon Is Now was a book that looks at the uh, like a system design perspective on the ecological crisis uh, and solutions uh, for, for dealing with it. Uh, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl looked at the uh, prophetic indigenous knowledge systems of cultures like the Hopi and the Maya and correlated them with, uh, you know, Western thought thinkers like Heidegger and Young and Rudolf Steiner. And Breaking Up in the Head was my first book that, that really chronicled my own kind of initiatory journey uh, through shamanism. Yeah, wonderful. Well, it was so nice that our paths crossed, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be here with us today. Thank you so much. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four-day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out-of-body experiences and life-changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends. That was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today. 